Hello and welcome. You're listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show podcast. Join me as we go delving through the archives to find out about people, places and events that happened in the past. These were stories that were big news in their day, but are largely forgotten now. Most of these podcasts have been specially edited from a Bradley Stoke radio show in Bristol, England. And one of the great things about this podcast is that I can go into more detail about each story because there are no time constraints. And it's really easy to show your support just by spreading the word, leaving reviews and sharing with all your family and friends. It really does help. If you want to get in touch with me with show ideas, comments or information, you can via Twitter or Facebook by using at Backtracker UK with a capital B, capital T and a capital UK or emailing me at info at backtracker.co.uk Now, on with the show. Now it's time for us to start part one of our story about the Babacan murder and the incredible tale of John Lee. This week's event occurred on the 23rd of February, 1885. But what else happened that year? Well, the 11th of March saw the birth of Malcolm Campbell, a land and water racer, He gained the world speed record on land and water at various times using vehicles called Bluebird, including a 1921 Grand Prix Sunbeam. His son Donald Campbell carried on the family tradition by holding both land speed and water speed records. The 14th of March saw Gilbert and Sullivan's comic opera The Mikado opening at the Savoy Theatre in London. The 26th of March saw the first legal cremation in England. Widowed painter Jeanette Picklesgill of London, who was well known in literary and scientific circles, is cremated by the Cremation Society at Woking Crematorium in Surrey. On June the 18th, we have the Clifton Hall Colliery disaster, where an explosion of the mine occurred at 9.20. It killed around 178 men and boys in Salford. Between the 6th and the 9th of July, we saw the Eliza Armstrong case. Campaigning journalist W.T. Steed publishes a series of articles in the Pall Mall Gazette entitled The Maiden Tribute of Modern Babylon, exposing the extent of female child prostitution in London. The Eliza Armstrong case was a major scandal in the United Kingdom involving a child bought for prostitution for the purpose of exposing the evils of sexual slavery. It did achieve its purpose of helping to enable the passage of the Criminal Law Amendment Act in 1885. An undated event that happened that year was the Glasgow Boys Painters, who had their first exhibit collectively at the Glasgow Institute of the Fine Arts. And lastly, on the 11th of September, D. H. Lawrence the English novelist, short story writer, poet and essayist, was born. Several of his novels, Sons and Lovers, The Rainbow Women in Love and Lady Chatterley's Lover, were the subject of censorship trials for their radical portrayals of sexuality and the use 
of explicit language. But our event happened on the 23rd of February, 1885. And that was just the start of a series of events that would shock the nation. Word of the Week And considering the time of year, this week's word offering is... Lengthen, which is an old English word for spring, and is where the word Lent, the period between Ash Wednesday and Easter, comes from. Lengthen is likely connected to the old German words for long and lengthening, and relates to the season's lengthening days. Today's tale takes us to the village of Babakum, situated on the shore of a small bay on the South Devon coast, between Tainmouth and Torquay. This was the scene of a cruel murder that had occurred on Saturday the 15th of February 1884. 68-year-old Miss Emma Anne Whitehead Keys lived in the picturesque marine villa at the foot of the cliff, surrounded by wooded pleasure gardens which was called the Glen. It was a pretty, low-thatched building. Her family had lived there for about 70 years, her father, Thomas Keyes, having bought it shortly before he died in 1820. Her mother then went on to marry Mr Whitehead, and they lived there and brought up the family. Emma accepted his own name as part of hers, and she lived there for more than 40 years after the house was passed down to her. Although she lived there alone, she often entertained visitors and had private yachting parties. Emma had been the former lady-in-waiting to Queen Victoria, and the monarch had visited her at Babacombe in 1846. Emma, along with Isambard Kingdom Brunel, had prevented the gasworks being built on Babacombe Beach. It went to Holicombe, near Paynton. So she was quite influential in her area. She had three female servants, one of whom had a half-brother, John Lee, 21 years old, and he was the butler and gardener in Miss Key's household since January. The other two were sisters, Jane and Eliza Neck, who had been with her for over 40 years. Let's get back to John Henry George Babacom Lee, a traveller or gypsy as they were called at the time, who was born at Abbasgawel on the 15th of August 1864. In 1879 he joined the Navy but was discharged due to ill health. In the Royal Navy records he was described as being five foot four with brown hair and blue eyes. He gained work as a servant in Torquay but was found guilty of theft from his employer and was imprisoned for six months in Exeter Prison. He was released in January 1884 and given employment by Emma Keyes at the Glen, who was keen to give him another chance. She, in fact, had employed him for a little while before he joined the Navy, so she was showing a great deal of compassion for him, following his bad reputation. The day and even the evening before the murder had progressed as usual, 
with Lee going out between six and seven to run errands, like pacing letters. His bed was in the pantry on the ground floor, near the dining room, and was made every day by one of the maids. The household had their usual evening prayers, and then Lee went to bed. His sister had gone earlier as she felt unwell. The night was rough and dark as Jade Neck locked up the house, leaving Miss Keys writing in the dining room. She was later heard going to her room. At some point during the night, Miss Keys came downstairs with a candle in her hand. Outside the dining room, she was struck twice with something that left a square wound, and prosecutors believed was a hatchet. The first two blows left her unconscious, but the third was fatal. Then, as if to make sure she wouldn't recover, the killer sliced her throat. The body of Miss Keys was dragged into the dining room and paper was placed around it, used to try and burn it, but unsuccessfully. This was when paraffin was then spread around the room, all over the carpet and table. More was poured in the hallway where the pool of blood was found and over the first two stairs before the whole place was set alight. In the night, or between three and four in the morning, the cook smelt something burning and raised the alarm. It was then discovered that the house had been set on fire in three places and Miss Keys was found in the dining room with a deep gash across her throat, with the side of her head smashed by the blow of some heavy object. Lee's half-sister, Elizabeth Harris, would later testify that... Jane Neck called out to me to go to Miss Key's room, but I could not see her. The place was so full of smoke. When I first saw Lee, he was wearing only shirt and trousers. I don't remember that he made any remark. I afterwards went downstairs where I found the dining room on fire. In front of the couch, lying on the floor, was the body of Miss Keys. One side of the couch and the wall were on fire. The deceased was in her nightdress, which was nearly burnt off her body. When Lee was downstairs, I noticed that his arm was bleeding. (laughs) Word on the street. Today, we're venturing south to Plymouth's Castle Dyke Lane. This alley is approximately 1.7 metres at its narrowest point, and in the 1840s housed 146 people, sometimes 10 confined to one room. And if that doesn't sound bad enough, bear in mind there was no sewage, which means that human waste was dumped into this very tiny street, so planks had to be laid out on the ground to prevent people from getting stuck in the sludge. Dyke was another word for ditch or toilet, an apt name for this once foul-smelling alley. The lane also reportedly had a slaughterhouse on it, adding animal waste to the list of ingredients which contributed to the overall cocktail of filth. Today, though, Castle Dyke Lane is a quiet residential area with a little reminder of its rather disgusting and smelly past.
Lee ran to a nearby pub to raise the alarm, exclaiming that Miss Keys is burnt to death. A report in a local Devon newspaper, the Express and Echo, on the 17th of November, 1884, describes the scene that onlookers were met with in the dining room. A horrible discovery was made. Lying on the floor was the lifeless body of Miss Keys. There was a deep gash across her throat. The right side of her head was smashed in. Her right leg and foot and other parts of her body were burnt and charred. There was no evidence that someone had broken into the house. John Lee, whose behaviour and appearance at the time seemed very suspicious, and so he was charged with murder. His previous character was bad, as he had been in prison for six months for stealing plate from a former master, and he was working out his notice, working for Miss Keys. But, to be honest, did that prove his guilt? An inquest was held before a jury at St Mary Church Town Hall, starting two days after the murder. 25 witness statements were read, including those of the cook, Elizabeth Harris, and the two other maidservants resident at the Glen, the elderly sisters, Eliza and Jane Neck. The jury returned a verdict accusing Lee of being responsible for Emma's death and the coroner directed that willful murder by John Lee should appear on her death certificate. On Monday the 2nd of February 1885 in Exeter Court, John Lee was placed in the dock, charged with the murder of Emma Keith at Babacom on November the 15th. This was a huge case at the time, and there was a lot of public interest. Long before the hour for opening the court, every seat was occupied. One juryman asked to be excused because he had previously worked with Mr Lee. Mr Collins QC in opening the case urged the jury to pay the closest attention to the evidence and not be influenced by anything they had heard outside. He then detailed the circumstances he proposed to prove with evidence, explaining various points which connected the prisoner with the murder of Emma Keyes. It was mentioned that the cook, Miss Elizabeth Harris, who was the prisoner's half-sister, was very unwell and heavily pregnant, which is why she couldn't be there. All the evidence showed that there had been no evidence that anyone else had broken into the house from the outside, and the murder must have been committed by someone from within. Counsel was afraid that the jury would come to no other conclusion than that the prisoner, Lee, was the murderer. In simple terms, there were six reasons why Lee was put forward as the murderer. Number one, the facts were that the house was locked up safely. There was no evidence of anyone entering from the outside. And the murder was committed within five feet of the door of the prisoner's room and within less than eight feet of the side of his bed. Number two. A fire was burning for a long time near the prisoner's room, and although the smoke awoke those upstairs, Lee did not raise any alarms. And the opening to the top of the doorway would allow the smoke and sound to freely enter his room. Number three, the deceased's throat was cut, and in Lee's drawers there was a knife covered with blood. The fire was started using the accelerant paraffin, 
and in the cupboard over the prisoner's bed was the only oil can on the premises. Number four, blood was found on the prisoner and on his trousers. His stockings were saturated with oil and attached were hairs similar to those from the deceased's head. Number five, the hatchet had never been seen in the house before the murder, but Lee had taken it to a local man who had asked to borrow one to take down the dining room ceiling in his house. And lastly, number six, the petroleum, as mentioned, was kept in a cupboard where Lee slept, and you couldn't get to that cupboard without having to step over Lee's bed. In court, the four details of what happened that fateful night were relived by all the witnesses. Between three and four, the cook awoke, smelling smoke, and rushed into the maid's room to awaken them. Eliza Neck went into Miss Key's room to wake her, but the room was on fire and her bed was empty. As the servants came down the blazing staircase, they could see that both the drawing and dining rooms were ablaze. Lee told the court that the servants had great difficulty in waking him. This was untrue because he was already awake and partly dressed. Various recollections came to light in the court cases. In one, Eliza said she called out to Lee, who asked what was the matter, and was told the house was on fire. Three rooms had been set on fire and the flames had been going so long in the dining room that it had burnt through to the room above. Jane Neck, one of the two sisters who had worked for Emma Keys for over 40 years, also told how they had found the fire and the smoke was so dense you couldn't cut it. She too came out with a different story of where Lee was, saying that he came to the top of the stairs to guide her and caught hold of a nightdress by the shoulder. Along with her sister Eliza, Jane tried to put the fire out and then discovered the body of Miss Keyes lying on the dining room floor in front of the sofa. She then escaped out of the dining room window, which was not at that point broken, but on going out a second time, she did find the window broken, and the prisoner told her he had smashed it to let out the smoke and had cut his arm. But when she looked at her nightdress in the afternoon, she found blood marks on the shoulder where he'd been guiding her down the stairs during the fire. His story about breaking the window from the inside to let out the smoke was disproved in court because skin was found to show that it was broken from the outside. During her questioning in court, Eliza said that the deceased was very kind to Lee. History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette, on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. This incredible historical adventure follows a path of exciting events, 
led by interesting people who reached beyond their grasp to touch key moments in time. The History of North America podcast series is an educational and entertaining look at the thrilling chronicle of North America, an action-packed tale of a continent that is still unfolding. I invite you to come along for the ride. In the news today, a policeman spotted an elderly lady knitting while driving. He shouted, pull over. She said, no, it's a scarf. Back in the day facts. Let's start with the 17th of February 1969, when Johnny Cash visited Bob Dylan at Nashville's Columbia Recording Studios while Dylan was recording his legendary Nashville Skyline album. Dylan and Cash began the joint session by running through only three songs before they decided to call it a day. On the 18th of February 1637, during the Eighty Years' War off the coast of Cornwall, a Spanish fleet intercepts an important Anglo-Dutch merchant convoy of 44 vessels, escorted by six warships, destroying or capturing 20 of them. The Eighty Years' War, or Dutch Revolt, was an armed conflict in the Habsburg Netherlands between the 17 provinces of the Netherlands and the Spanish government. The causes of the war included the Reformation, centralisation, excessive taxation and the rights and privileges of the Dutch nobility and cities. On the 19th of February 1674, England and the Netherlands, again, signed the Treaty of Westminster, ending the Third Anglo-Dutch War. The provision of the agreement transfers the Dutch colony of New Amsterdam to England. Then it was a 17th century Dutch settlement established at the southern tip of Manhattan Island that served as the seat of the colonial government in New Netherlands. The initial trading factory gave rise to the settlement around Fort Amsterdam. The fort was situated on the strategic southern tip of the island of Manhattan and was meant to defend the fur trade operations of the Dutch West India Company in the North River. In 1624, it became a provincial extension of the Dutch Republic and was designated as the capital of the province in 1625. New Amsterdam became a city when it received municipal rights on February 2, 1653. In 1664, the English took over New Amsterdam and renamed it New York after the Duke of York. On the 20th of February 1905, the Bristol Art Gallery opened its doors for the first time and it had nearly 300,000 visitors in its first three months. Personally, I have to say it's one of my favourite places to go to in Bristol. On the 21st of February 1861, after being a great Sussex landmark for 700 years, Chichester Cathedral's spire collapses despite the desperate efforts of 70 workmen. It all started around 1.30pm on the Thursday, when the spire leaned slightly to the southwest, and then telescoped neatly and apparently almost soundlessly 
down into the tower below, producing a huge cloud of dust and severely damaging a large part of the cathedral transept. Frank Patterson of Billinghurst had an interesting letter published in the old Sussex County magazine in May 1935 about the tower's fall. In the year 1861, my grandfather was on duty upon the old semaphore in Portsmouth Dockyard, sweeping the horizon with a telescope. By strange coincidence, he happened to be looking at the cathedral when it suddenly disappeared. His tale was not believed till other telescopes were brought into play. I well remember the old gentleman telling me the tale in my childhood of how it appeared not to fall over, but rather collapse like a concertina. On the 22nd of February, 1974, 50 years ago, James Blunt was born. Not only is he an English singer, songwriter and musician, he's also a former reconnaissance officer in the Lifeguards Regiment of the British Army. He served under NATO during the 1999 Kosovo War. And lastly, on the 23rd of February, 1958, Five-time Argentine Formula One champion Juan Manuel Fangio is kidnapped by rebels involved in the Cuban Revolution on the eve of the Cuban Grand Prix. He was released the following day after the race. Well, I'm afraid that's it for part one of our tale of the Babacan murder. And I promise you there is a twist in the second part. Until then, I'd like to thank the people who brought today's story to life. And this week it's Steve Yeo and Kate Kendall from St. Stephen's Drama Group in Bristol, as well as Cerise Reed and Steve Shepherd. Thank you, one and all. Thank you once again for listening to me, Alice, on the Backtracker History Show. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter or Facebook by looking up at Backtracker UK with a capital B, a capital T and a capital UK. I also occasionally post onto TikTok and Instagram. So do come along and find me because it's amazing to hear from you and get some feedback or even ideas for future shows. As a small independent podcaster, your help and support is always appreciated. And one way you can do that is to rate the show wherever you get your podcasts. Leaving a review also helps as it gives other people an idea of what the show's about. The show is regularly released on Mondays. So until next time, guys, take care and look after each other. (laughs) 